Father, thank you for this gathering tonight. So good to see so many out tonight. Thank you for the meal that was served, Gabriel and his team, and so many wonderful people there serving and caring for the body. So many good conversations going around the building today. Oh, Lord, thank you for the fellowship of the brethren, fellowship of the saints. You've brought us into a family. We love each other, solve problems. We work through things because Christ died for our sin. We don't have to remain angry and bitter and fighting as the world does, Lord. Let us not bite and devour one another, but let us love one another. As Christ has loved us, let us forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. What a joy, Lord, to be a part of a family. We want to look to your word today, Lord, and we want to know you better. We want to study you from the Old Testament, Jesus, and see where things that point it forward can give us a deeper grasp of your great sacrifice for us. So teach us now from your word. Let the truth of God's word come off the page and grip us. Let us not be the same as we came in and when we leave, Lord. Thank you for loving us. <laughs> Thank you for dying for us. What a, what a great act of your love. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to be in Leviticus chapter 6, starting in verse 8 tonight. We're working through our series on Leviticus. Well, really, I'm working through the Pentateuch is what I'm doing, if you haven't figured that out. I told Gina yesterday, I said, I, I got to get through the Pentateuch before I die. She goes, are you going to die after you get done? I go, I don't know. It might take me that long. Um, I, 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 something I've always wanted to do to really understand biblical theology. So uh, I thought that tonight this is start in a way of helping us a little bit understand when we come into a, into a message on the Old Testament, what does it mean to teach with a biblical theology? And I, I think some of you understand that, but I, I thought it'd be refreshing for all of us to kind of think through biblical theology. You go, well, where did that thought and where did that theological term come from? Well, it really came from Jesus Christ himself. Luke chapter 24, Jesus is risen from the dead, and he's on the Emmaus Road. you remember this? And he's with two disciples. He just suddenly appears with them and comes up behind them, and he begins to say, hey, what are you talking about? And they're going like, where have you been? Haven't you heard? And they start to explain his own death on the cross. And he's, he goes, yeah, tell me more. He's just kind of entreating out of them. And eventually they walk and they find a place to stay and they ask him to stay with them. And there he breaks bread and all of a sudden their minds open up and they realize that's Jesus with them. The one that they were just talking about was crucified and buried and they even said one of our disciples has seen him. Well, Jesus went on to say some very, very important things. Luke 24, uh, 20, somewhere around there, verse 44, he says it twice. He says, all of the scriptures, starting with Moses, the Psalms and the prophets are about me. It's, it is an amazing statement. And for us in a new covenant, we're, we're not under the old covenant. Christ fulfilled the old covenant, meaning he is that final sacrifice. He's everything that needed to be accomplished in the Old Testament. He satisfied the law. He satisfied God. We're under the new covenant. Now we look back at the Old Testament as it looks forward to things as it looks forward to Christ. And when we study it, we find deeper things about the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we study the book of Leviticus, which is probably the most challenging one to do this in, we begin to see these things are pointing to something else. Probably many of us were raised in a church, and we, if we were raised in church, when the Old Testament was taught, it was just stories, probably. You, you heard about David and Goliath, and you, and you heard about Moses and the Red Sea, and you heard about all those things. But most likely, because I, I was raised in what would have been good churches, 
but never understood that that was all pointing to something so much greater. So you had your Old Testament over here, and those, you know, those were good, encouraging, and moral stories that go get them, David. Yeah, dare to be a Daniel. But we, didn't, we never tied it to Christ. And, and it's probably a failing of the church to understand that when Jesus himself says, all of that's about me. So now, brothers and sisters, when we open our Old Testament Bibles and you study and you read, maybe you're doing a Bible reading through the scriptures in a year or, or you've taken a book in the Old Testament, you begin to gauge your mind and start thinking, okay, God, here I am in all these sacrifices or all this Old Testament law or these events that are taking place in the Old Testament. How does this show me the coming Christ? See, when you do that, your mind starts to open up and you start to go, oh, I never saw that before. So you've heard me say many times, and here's what I do often to teach biblical theology, we start with some what we call softball pitches. So a softball pitch would be something like um, uh, probably the pre-incarnate Christ in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 when man falls, right? There he tells them that there's going to be a seed coming, right, from you who will crush the head of the serpent. Well, who's that? Jesus, okay, that's biblical theology. Now, that's a little easier than looking at the, the offering, the sin offering in, in Leviticus 6 and trying to understand all this that it points to the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we keep working on it, we get better at it. Uh, so when I learned biblical theology many years ago, I started taking, a good friend of mine said, hey, take the softball pitches and work on those. And so I would look at passages like Isaiah 53. Wait, that's the one we would know. Who's Isaiah 53 about? It's God about, about Christ, right? So you're doing biblical theology when you look at that. And so now we move into a little tougher place to do biblical theology in the book of Leviticus. It, it's a little more challenging. And, um, but that's, that's our job as elders and pastors and overseers to learn and understand this and help you as you, we study this together. So I want to encourage you. Do not be afraid of the Old Testament. I don't know how many people through the years come and say, well, yeah, I just don't see any need for the Old Testament anymore. <laughs> My knees almost buckle. Whoa! Let's start with the first five words. In the beginning, created the heavens and earth. I mean, oh my goodness, you want to leave that one out? And then you go to Colossians 1, and it tells us Christ is the creator. And Hebrews 1, it tells us Christ is the creator. And John 1 tells us that Christ is the creator. So now how do you look at Genesis 1? Oh. Wow, i got to start putting Christ in that first chapter of the Bible. Right? So, see, biblical theology is really fun to study. And your Old Testament starts to come alive to you. Right? You go in Miss Kay's class in Sunday school and her four-year-olds are there. She's going to tell you that this story isn't focused completely on David. David can't die. Why? Because the seed is in him. The seed is in him. And yes, we see the human vulnerability as he picks up five stones. We know he's going down with one. <laughs> because there's no way David's dying. The seed of Christ is in that guy, right? Ruth and Boaz and, and, and even the harlot at Jericho. I mean, you start to look at those and you go, I'm going to go back and read her story. She's in the line of Jesus Christ. I'm going to go read how God sustained her and how he brought a seed through a woman who was barren for all these years. Oh, see, biblical theology gets you excited because it gives you a fuller view of Christ. So that's what we're trying to do. So if you're new here and you're starting to come to Riverbend or, or you haven't been around biblical theology and go, well, we want you to come to Wednesday night. Our pastor's preaching on Leviticus. <laughs> Maybe a hard sell. 
But it's your job to say, hey, the Bible is all pointing forward. All pointing forward. See, this is what we do at seminary. This is what we do at Bible school. This is what we should be doing, BFGs and so forth. I hope our teachers are learning to do this. And then all the way down to our four-year-olds. They're learning to see the Old Testament as pointing forward to something so beautiful. Now, one of the terms we're going to see um, throughout the Old Testament is a term reconciliation. Last time, I was, I was gone last week, Josh preached, and man, was that good. I was watching that from out west. Um, but the time before, we, we preached on the fact that Jesus Christ is always providing a way to himself. And he, we see that through the sacrifices. He's always showing that he wants a relationship with people. Um, I think when I was young, I looked at the Old Testament sacrifice and go, man, it was tough. God was making every way possible for sinners to have a relationship with him. Sacrifice after sacrifice, bringing them into his presence so he could talk with them and help them understand who he was, to give them motivation to live for him. I see God more gracious than I ever have. Now, you know, after all these years, even going through the book of Leviticus. This week, we're going to work, find the word reconciliation. And then I want to start in a New Testament passage and then go back. So let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as we talk about reconciliation. This is a very important word. Um, it's, in our, it's in our English language, right? We talk about um, couples reconciling. We talk about old friendships that were broken because of sin, reconciling. So we know the word, don't we? But even in the language of uh, our English language, it probably falls short to what the biblical term means. But let's look at a couple of passages here in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to help us try to get our mind around uh, what the term reconciliation means. Look at verse 16. We'll jump off there and work our way down through the rest of this passage. He says, Therefore, from now on, we reconcile to no one according to the flesh. Now, right there, it tells you that there's something, reconciliation has been in some process previously. There's been a process for reconciliation. Um, it's Old Testament law. God provided a way to be reconciled with God. But he says right now, listen, there's, there's, a new, there's something new. We're no longer according to the flesh. And what he means according to the flesh is, I bring a sacrifice, you accept that. That reconciles us for a short term. He said there's something greater. Of course, we know who it is, right? But you can already see, here's biblical theology. He's reaching back, saying reconciliation used to be done to our flesh. I would pick an unblemished lamb or a bull or a grain offering or a first fruits offering, and I would bring that to be reconciled uh, for at least a short term, for maybe even a year with God, and then I would do it again. So he says in verse 16, Therefore, now on, we, we reconcile to no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, he was here in flesh and body, right? He was human. Yet now we know him this way no longer. Meaning Christ came to the earth. He, he came fully man, fully God, right? We call this the incarnation. God added here, Jesus Christ, our God and Savior, adds flesh to his deity. So he's fully God, fully man, is what Paul is telling us here. And in, even though we knew him in the flesh, he was there, right? John says we touched him, we saw him, we, we witnessed him, we walked with him, we talked with him, all of that. He was here. We don't know him this way any longer. Why? Because what he came to do was fulfilled. And once it was finished, he went to that grave, God raised him from the dead to prove that our sins were forgiven, and he ascended where? 
on high. Where is he right now? The right hand of the Father. That means he has all authority that God has. He shares that authority with God. So, so that's how we know him now. So now notice this, verse seven, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. So if you're saved by Christ alone, not through your works, not through your flesh, you are a new creature. God looks at you completely new. Notice this phrase, the old things are passed away. I praise God for that verse. I am so glad that the Bible tells me to forget the things that are past if I'm truly repented of that, right? By God gave me faith, which allowed me to repent of my sins. I am not controlled by those things any longer. I'm free from that, and I press on to the upward calling. So he says that old things have passed away. And that's probably several things. One, my sin has been taken care of. Also, the law has been taken care of. He's not asking me to show up on Sunday here with a lamb. There was one final lamb. Those, the old law has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the law teaches us the glories of Christ. So he goes on to say this. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. See, that's why we get a word, old covenant, new covenant. Verse 18. Now all these things are from God. They're all from God. The old covenant was from God. And certainly the new covenant was from God. And the new covenant was always his plan, right? And he says, all these things have been from God. Look at this. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Now, let's stop right there. The definition of a good biblical definition of reconciliation is that he changed our position. Change of direction is the word for repentance. But here he changed our position. We were old or we were dead in our sins. Now we're alive. We were lost, but now we're fine. We were blind, but now we see. He reconciled. He changed our position to him. This is a glorious thought, right? And, and this is theology, right? The, the theology is what? The doctrine of God. You hear people go, well, you know, that church is too, too much doctrine for me. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you need doctrine. That's, that's what we believe is the doctrine of God that tells us this, we study God. We study what God did for us. And so here we begin to understand that, that now all things have, uh, are from God who reconciled. He changed my position. I once was an enemy. Now I am a family member. I once had no right to his kingdom. I had no right to be in his presence. And now I have the right at any moment to step into the Holy of Holies and speak with me. And as we've learned on Sundays, he's taken up residence within me. And the most holy place on the world is where I stand and where you sit because the Spirit dwells within you. So think about this, how beautiful this is. Now all these things are from God who reconciled, changed my position to himself through Christ. Not through keeping the law, not through Christ and the law, not through Christ plus anything, not through Christ plus your free will, through Christ. That's how he reconciled us. We add nothing to it. It's perfect. It's what we call the finished work of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And look at this. Now, and, and if there was something else, wouldn't he put it in that sentence? No, look what he does. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, this is the ministry of us going out to tell people, hey, you can be right with God. Now, we know our theology tells us that God has to save people. Man can't save people. We can't twist and make their will come along. Their will is dead. They'd have not, free will is dead, died in the garden, right? 
And so we realize that it's God's job, but he gave us the ministry to tell how. And that's what we do here when we sing, when we preach, when we go and speak to a neighbor who's afraid to death of COVID or afraid to die or, or saddened over the death of somebody, whatever the case may be, you always have the opportunity to tell somebody they can have a different position with God. You might, well, you will have to explain what their current position is. Somewhere along the line, you have to say, well, the wages of sin is death. And I choose to use myself. I usually don't walk up and say, hey, buddy, you're dead in your sins and you're on the way to hell. I'll say, this guy right here was dead in his sins. I had no spiritual pulse. But Jesus, his death on the cross and his gracious gift of giving me faith to believe him led me to repentance and I believe. And now I'm not dead any longer. I'm alive. And I'm a child of the king. And I have great joy and hope, and I'm not afraid of death any longer. You imagine telling the world that right now? I mean, they are scared to death of, of their own shadows at this point. And we have the ministry of reconciliation. Look at verse 19. I promise I'm going to get to Leviticus 6. Namely, that God in Christ, isn't that beautiful? They look at the equality there. How could God be in something less than God? Boy, we're deep in the theology now, aren't we? We're in the deep the equality of Christ, the, the shared deity of Jesus Christ and God, who God says in Isaiah, I will not share my glory with another. But right here, look at that phrase. Isn't that beautiful? That God in Christ. How would God be in anything else but himself? Everything else would be less, right? So Christ has to be God. So they share this deity, though we understand them and have been given to us to understand the Trinity and how the member of each Trinity is involved in our salvation in relation to us, we see the equality that Christ has in God and God in Christ. So he says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, changing the position to the world. You go, well, does that mean everybody's getting saved? Oh, that's a good question. Well, we know that's not true, Right? There have been many through generations who have rejected Jesus. We have a Bible full of them that we can see in the past, let alone today. So what he's saying here is he loves to save people from all over the place. He's using the world the way John would use the word John, way John would use it in John 3:16, for God so loved the world. It's not universalism. John is writing to a Greek world now, a Jewish world now. A world full of all kinds of people, but now the door is open because of the cross. And so he says he's reconciling the world. So our missionaries in, in North Africa are seeing people come to Christ that, that are of Muslim faith or, or a complete different uh, background, a race of people in uh, the, the Philippines and in Mexico and Latin world and so forth. Oh, see, he's reconciling the whole world, right? And we have a verse, right? At his name, every knee will bow. And then Revelation 5 says that every people, tribe, tongue, nation will sing his praises. See, this is what he's doing. And this is why we do missions, right? Because this is what God's doing. He's saving the world. He's changing the world's position. Isn't this beautiful? Reconciling the world to himself, middle of 19. Not counting their trespasses against them. Oh, Lord, is that beautiful. If we were to have our trespasses counted against us, we are all in trouble, aren't we? Hell's going to have to get a bigger gate because we're all coming. Isn't that beautiful? He does not hold our trespasses against us. He forgives them. In fact, he's so glorious 
that he chooses never to bring them up again. We bring them up. You bring them up with each other, but he doesn't bring them up because he forgave you. See, that's what true forgiveness is. Forgiveness says, yes, I forgive you. I, I treat you with kindness and love because God in Christ forgave me and this, because God and Christ have been the example of what true forgiveness is. This is reconciling himself, reconciling us, changing our position. We are now not count, our sins counted against us. We're free of them. And notice it says, and he has committed us to the word of reconciliation. What I love about that statement says, those who are forgiven know how to say, here's how you're forgiven. If you don't feel very forgiven, you're probably not going to tell people how to be forgiven. Or you're going to tell it poorly. See, forgiven people know how to tell other people how to be forgiven. That's the ministry of reconciliation. How God changed my position from dead to alive. Forgive, unforgiven and, and having to, to, to spend my eternity in hell paying for the wages of sin. I can now tell people, Jesus paid my wages. Full. All the way to the law. Every sin I ever committed it was put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He paid the full wages for it. I can tell people that. That's the ministry of reconciliation. Are you committed to this ministry? Uh, look at verse 20. Therefore, if all that's true, right, we're ambassadors for Christ. We're ambassadors for Christ. Isn't that a great word? Everybody in this room, at least probably all Americans, know what an ambassador is. It's someone who goes and represents our country to another country, isn't it? We represent the kingdom of God. How are you doing with your representation? Are you working for the king? Or are you working for yourself? I mean, one of the two, right? We, sometimes we're not very good ambassadors. We're over kind of working on our own little mini kingdoms. I know I'm supposed to be here for Christ, but man, i got to gain wealth. And we're so consumed with building our own kingdoms, we, we forget who we're ambassadors for. We're actually very poor. We're using the jet improperly. Right? We're transporting back goods for ourselves instead of for the Lord. Right, So there's this ministry called ambassadors for Christ. That's who we are. We represent the king of kings. We represent his kingdom. And it says, as though God were making, look at this, an appeal through us. Don't tell me God is not personally involved with your ministry of reconciliation. You know that verse tells me, even as I'm preaching here today and speaking here today, he's appealing through me to you. And afterwards, when you come tell me how God has worked in your heart lately, or you come to one of our offices and you go through a counseling appointment, or you need help, or you just want to share what God's doing, you're, you're bringing back a report telling, this is how God made an appeal through me. Now, sometimes the appeal of ambassadors are not liked. Like, yes, we're coming over here. If you don't surrender, we're going to blow you off the face of the map. <laughs> right? There's sometimes the ambassador has to do deaf things, doesn't he? Sometimes we have to go and deal with church discipline. Sometimes we have to go and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, you're acting outside of what God has called a believer. We need to change from that. We need to turn from that. Sometimes that's not as, always as easy. But always with that comes the gospel. But there's a way out. You don't have to fall under judgment. Jesus Christ has died. And so we're ambassadors for Christ. We come for him, right? As though God is making appeal through us. I, I, there's nothing funner than speaking to somebody the gospel and walking away and going, Wow, God, thank you. I was remembering verses I'm not sure I ever memorized. Right? Choose coming back. You've been here, right? You get the guy in the door, knocks, you know, open it up, and pretty soon all this stuff floods out of here. You go, wow, who was that? 
It just starts coming out of you because you've learned your Bible and, you're, and God's using you to appeal to these. Now notice this, we beg you. <laughs> we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See, I love the terminology there. I am full on doctrines of grace guy. You know me. I, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I, I love the sovereignty of God. It actually propels me forward in, in evangelism. And I think that's what Paul's doing here. He says because he's so sure, so confident, there's only one who can reconcile people to Christ, and that's God himself through Christ. He, he can beg people to be reconciled. I never stop begging people to be saved. Why do I do that? Boy, you're sure. Like, I've had people say, your theology sounds like a Calvinist, but you preach like an Arminian. <laughs> I like that compliment. I really do. Because I'm pleading with you to know Jesus. <laughs> I don't want you to go to hell. I'm, I'm pleading, I'm begging you to be reconciled to God. I, don't, I honestly don't, I'm not the one who makes that final decision. God does that. He's, he already knows that from the foundations of the world. I don't, praise the Lord. My job is to plead with you to be reconciled to God. Amen? Doesn't that take a lot of pressure off of us? I, I don't have to, what if I stumbled? And what if I said the wrong thing? Would that person go to hell because I said the wrong thing? <laughs> Wait a minute, that's God's job, heaven and hell, life and death. All of that belongs to him. My job is to plead with you to know Jesus, to live for him. See, he's begging. Paul says, look, we beg you on behalf of Christ. B, change your position to God through Christ alone. Don't go to hell resisting him. And then verse 20, he puts a cap on all this, and we all know this verse very well. He, God, made him Christ. And this really gets us to the heart of, of the, the sacrifices that are in Leviticus. He, God, who made him Christ, who knew no sin, meaning he was innocent, to be sin on our behalf. And that doesn't mean Jesus became a sinner. It means he took on the wages of our sin. Here's how I said it. And if you've been around here very long, you've heard me say it this way. And I hope you can say it something like this. Maybe you have a better way of saying it. God judged Christ like he committed my sins. Does that make sense? He is sinless. But he stepped in the way of my judgment, and God judged him as though he committed my sin. That's what that verse means, I believe. I think it's one of, just through the years of trying to say that in a way that explains the scriptures. He became sin on our behalf. God put my judgment upon him. And here's a great so that, which is always a, a great motivating, concluding thought. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And here we come to another great doctrine. We've been talking about the doctrine of reconciliation. Now we talk about the doctrine of imputation. God took Scott's sin, imputed it on his son, and he took, the, he took his son's righteousness and imputed it on me. Wow. What an amazing thing. And you know, every Old Testament sacrifice has that in it. When you get into the Old Testament, you're working through the law in, in, in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you're, you're trying to get through your daily reading. If you can just remember that, that God was teaching of something that was better to come, but he was reconciling, he was giving them temporary imputation there, that they were forgiven in those sacrifices till Christ would come and fulfill all of that. Oh, that's the beauty of the Old Testament. It teaches us word pictures. Is that helpful? 
biblical theology, doctrine of reconciliation, doctrine of uh, imputation, that's what we learn as we study our Bibles. Now, we'll see how far we get, but go back to Leviticus 6, and we'll kind of go through this passage. Um, they're, they're bigger passages, and there's a lot of detail in here, and I'll try to move through them somewhat quickly so we can understand what's happening here. When we get to Leviticus 6, verse 8, there's a, there's a context break right there. Last time we were looking at um, the sacrifices for the nation, um, for individuals, uh, um, uh, for the leaders, and so forth in there. Now he turns the view to the priest and to the item that's being offered and how that's supposed to be done. And he works very hard to make that clear to Moses of how these were going to be handled. So first we see, number one, justice and love perfectly fulfilled in Christ. And you notice I have a very biblical theology title. Because when I look at this, I don't go, oh, that's really cool. There's a, another offering. I see Christ in these things. So that's why my titles come out. Justice and love perfectly fulfilled in Christ. Now, verses 8 through 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his son, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering itself shall remain on the hearth of the altar all night until morning. And the fire on the altar is to be kept burning on it. And the priest is to put on the, his linen robe. And he shall put on the undergarments next to his flesh, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire reduces the burnt offering on the altar and place them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garment and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it, and it shall, go, it shall not go out. But the priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and, it shall lay on the bur- and, and he shall lay, on the bur- lay out on the burnt offering on it. And offer up in smoke a fat portions of the peace offering on it. The fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. It is not to go out. Well, once again, we find the Holy One of Israel, God Himself, now speaking from His most holy place there in the tabernacle in the Holy of the Holies. And He's speaking to Moses as Moses is listening. He's giving further instruction here. And this is an offering that that as he begins to speak about this offering is the same offering he talked about in Leviticus 1, but he's coming from the view of the priest, how the priest is to handle this and what's to happen with this offering. So we have a little different view of of chapter 1 here. Now, from these verses, we begin to understand that the animal is placed on the altar and it's supposed to burn slowly. And it's supposed to be consumed over time. And, and clearly, a priest must have had to stay up all night to keep this fire going, right? And they must have had a big treasure of wood to do that. Open flame burns probably quickly with, with dry wood. And so there had to be somebody maintaining that. As I was studying this, I thought, I, I think when I was a kid, when I looked at the Old Testament, I thought, well, I want to be the tribe of Benjamin or someone out there, you know, frontline, you know, warrior. And you guys, those Levites, I don't know what they're doing. They're eating lamb all the time. These guys are super busy when you study what they do. They, they're probably one of the busiest people year-round, day in and day out, serving the Lord. They're constantly uh, trying to tend to the things of God, right? So when you study the book of Leviticus, you begin to realize that their work never ends. Just think about gathering wood. You've got to keep the fire burning constantly, and you live in the desert. You've got to go get wood somewhere. And it's fascinating to kind of think through that. Remember in Joshua chapter 9 when the uh, Gibeonites um, dress up like they have traveled for days and days and they, they brought dry bread and they fooled Joshua that they weren't neighboring tribes and that they were way away and they, they wanted them not to wipe them out. And they, they put a, pulled a hoax over on Joshua. And Joshua failed and the leaders failed to seek God. And so they made a deal with them, right? 
And then it got exposed that they were actually neighbors. But yet they had given their oath. Now God said, don't wipe them out. Here's what you need to do. And one of the things they were made to do was hewers of wood. (laughs) And I'll tell you, that was not an easy job for Israel. They were constantly sacrificed, constantly burning sacrifices. That altar was going night and day. And so the Gibeonites became that. Later on, as you get the nation of Israel, when they come out of, um, they come out of captivity and they're released uh, from, uh, from what would have been Assyria and then Babylon and then the Medes, Persians, and the Persian kings let them go, 50,000 Jews and Nehemiah and Ezra came and they went back to Israel. Remember this? As they got back there, they discovered the law. They began to read the law. They were rebuilding the wall and they eventually rebuilt the temple. And as they stare over the wall, Nehemiah chapter 10 says that they, they actually cast lots for who would be the supplier of wood from among the priests. Like, who's going to get that job, right? <laughs> oh, wood. I got the wood deal. <laughs> so I'm, what I'm trying to make point is this was a hard job, man. And uh, I hope they cycled around because there was no chainsaws and wood splitters. This was long, hard, tedious work to do this. God wanted it done this way. And as I studied this, you, you just can't get away from the typology also that comes along with this. Um, when you start thinking about this burning fire and perpetual smoke to heaven and, and this perpetual burning of these sacrifices up, I, I read a lot of people trying to get my mind around this a little bit. And some authors point it to a perpetual fire as a reflection of, of the altars of our heart, that they should be burning with the truth of Christ always. I, I, I appreciate that thought. Others spoke of the fire is like the holy fire of God that, that comes down and burns and shows his glory. Um, that, that was a reflection of that. I'm not sure quite if that was it, but I thought that was a good thought as well. Still, others talked about a perpetual fire that reflected the, always the faith and love that the followers of God should have that should never be quenched. Um, again, I think that's a good uh, application. I'm not sure that's what it was. Still, I read another person who said that it's a reflection of the love of God that never goes out. Well, those are all good truths, right? That sounds good, but I'm not sure that's exactly what it was. Another guy said these are like the prayers of Jesus um, or the work of the Holy Spirit. Even in biblical theology, we have to be careful not to read something into the text. So here's, here's where my thoughts on this, and, and I think this is where it lands. I believe that these sacrifices point to sin and righteousness. The wages of sin is de- death, so something's dying. And it's falling under hard, hard judgment to the point that it's completely consumed. And then there's righteousness here because the person who offers that and and puts their faith in that offering is going to receive righteousness. Though it is short term, it's going to have to be done again and again until the coming of Christ. Um, It shows that there's righteousness there. You can gain righteousness by doing things God's way. And so I think they all point towards that. And so the sacrifices always point us to I, I think the awfulness of sin, I don't know if you've ever killed an animal. If you've ever shot one or had one, I mean, we bled lambs out. Maybe you've killed chickens in your farm days or whatever. You know, it's not for the faint of heart. Not everybody can do that. But it's interesting to hold something as the life flows out of it. It's awful. Death is awful. But death is a result of sin, and God wanted his people to see time and time again that sin kills. Do you realize that? It's trying to kill everything you have. That's its goal. Sin 
wants to break, kill, and destroy. Satan introduced it in the garden because he knew that's what it would do. It did it to him and God, right? He coveted the position of God and it killed his relationship with God and was cast out of the garden. And so he knew how it worked. And so when we study these sacrifices, you begin to understand there's an awfulness to sin. But then there's this perpetual flame that certainly could speak of the eternal justice of God, right? I mean, the flame does not go out in hell. Do you realize that? The Bible's very clear on this. The flames of hell are not extinguished. Hell does not sleep when it comes to judgment. It's perpetual. And these, these sacrifices teach us of this. The preach, think about the priests. They're watching over and over this perpetual flame, and they're, they're charged of keeping it going. And yet they see people come and go who are forgiven. They're, they, in a sense, gain um, some kind of level of the righteousness of God as their sin is imputed on this animal as they put their hand on the animal. But God is looking down with eternal judgment on that sacrifice. So when you study sacrifice in the Old Testament, if you can keep that straight, that animal is feeling the weight of, the, of a righteous God so that he can grant forgiveness to somebody else. I, I'm, I'm telling you, your Old Testament will come alive when you keep that Keep that thought in your mind as you go. These terms are, are amazing because here you see the smoke going up, rising up. It's a constant reminder of judgment. Uh, it, it led me to the middle of Revelation. Revelation 14, just listen to this real quick. Um, you have these angels. These three angels are sent to speak this message to the earth, right? And then, the, then another angel, the third one, I'm down to the third one, said this um, with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast in his image... And receives the mark on his forehead and on his hand. Don't be reading this into anything. I know where your minds are going right now. Um, we don't quite know what this is yet. He also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Which is mixed in full strength of the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels. And in the presence of the Lamb. He will be tormented with fire and brimstone forever, right? And then listen to this. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his, and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. I'll tell you what that is, is that's people who reject Jesus down to the very end times. But notice the smoke keeps going up. So there's got to be something about these sacrifices, I hope I'm right here, that this perpetual burning of fire reminds us that there's judgment. There's smoke going up saying, this isn't going to end tomorrow. This isn't annihilation theories that get, work their way into the Christian church. This isn't some kind of purgatory this is God's judgment on those who reject his son. And that one needed to be taught as much, just as much as the righteousness that they would have as they laid their head, believing their hand on the head, believing by faith that this lamb was going to die in their place. See, really, there is a big difference, but in a way, when we come to salvation, in a, in a sense, we place our spiritual hands on Christ and say, I believe you can take away my sins. I, I believe you are the propitiation. I believe you're going to impute your righteousness to me and you're going to satisfy the wrath of God and I'll never see the fire and smoke of hell because of you. See, isn't that beautiful? And we, and we see this happening. And though there's a lot of detail here and some repetition that goes on here, and it can seem dry if you don't think about Jesus, but when you do, it becomes very beautiful, doesn't it? It's hard to imagine 
what the camp was like when sacrifices were going, but I, but I think I got my mind around it today as I was finishing writing this. I thought about an Israeli father who would come out when there's darkness. There was no city lights, no electricity. And he brought his children out, but over there in the tabernacle, there's a flame burning. <laughs> and maybe a godly Israelite father would turn to his children, point to that flickering flame over there, and he said, son, daughter, that's because we sin. I know it looks good, and it's a glow over there, and you maybe want to roast a marshmallow. Don't think they had marshmallows. <laughs> but a godly father would have said, that is because we sinned, and today we were over there offering a lamb. I can imagine that happening, right? There was always a godly remnant. God always had a remnant that believed in him. And though later we see the nation very, uh, very sad to see what they did, they rejected God, and, and it seemed like, where's the remnant? But, but God always has a remnant of believers. Maybe that same father, after pointing out that that's because of sin, maybe he points out to that flicker of flame over there going, but it also paid our price. So he wanted his children to understand the wages of sin, but he also wanted them to understand there was a substitute. There was a substitute. And he began to try to help his child understand that. See, here there's room for typology as we begin to look at this. There's room for Christ as we think about this. He is the one who suffered and was accepted by the Father and continually day and night intercedes for us because of his finished work on the cross. And the father delighted in the son's sacrifice. He delights in it day and night, day and night. He still delights in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Do you know that? He delights what Jesus did for us. He delights in that. And so maybe the father, as he ready to tuck his children into bed in their tent, would say, son, daughter, you can sleep in peace tonight. Because our sins are forgiven. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, think how much greater, though, here on this side of the cross. Even though that was pointing, and those ones by faith who offered sacrifices by faith will see them in heaven because they put their faith in God that God would save them. We will, know, we will see and be together like brethren with, with Old Testament saints. But here on this side of the cross, what peace we have. And maybe we abuse peace. Maybe we are too comfortable with peace sometimes. Ah, I'm a Christian. Too many times I've heard people say, yeah, I know I'm not living for God, but I'll get to that later. I got time. I want to do this. Ooh. One, you better examine to see if you're ever addiction to the faith. Two, if you are, he disciplines the ones he loves. Look out. That's a terrible thought, isn't it? See, peace is because of Jesus Christ, not because I said a prayer, walked an aisle, raised a hand, and put some kind of fire insurance in my back pocket. Peace is because of Jesus. The Prince of Peace gave us peace. And I can see that father tucking in his children, saying, God has forgiven us. God has forgiven us. That flicker out there, that smoke teaches us that. These verses... Um, were given so they would have further instructions. Notice in the passage I read that there was, a, there was time to deal with the ashes. Um, and they needed to take care of that. And I, I thought much about that. First of all, you notice they have these linens and they're, 
they're always a type of purity, right? These linens were washed before they, before they dealt with the sacrifices. And the, and the, and the priest, in some ways, they're they are type two. They resemble a coming redeemer with this perfect purity and so forth. And, and I don't think the linen robe um, was the display of the glory of God. I, I read some people that read that. I think, it's the, I think the priest who was wearing that robes is actually a display of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Earthly. Jesus Christ coming perfect in flesh, but totally human as well. And so I think they reflected the human, whole, excuse me, the, the reflection of his holy human humanity. And remember, the priests are also a type. There's a greater high priest coming, pointing toward the Lord Jesus Christ. But even their undergarments talked about their purity, right? It talks about the undergarment that was to touch the skin and keep the other garment away from it. But that also tells us that their skin was that the nakedness was a remembrance of the garden. I thought about this today. I thought, today the world wants to show more nakedness. And in the Old Testament, they were to be ashamed of it. Today, nakedness is accepted and, and uh, I mean, pushed out there, right? Wear as little as you can. I mean, that's today. Isn't that interesting? And yet God... When he came and found the couple ashamed and hiding in the garden, the first thing he does is he kills an animal, an innocent animal, and covers their shame. Now, I know that's application there, but it is interesting. And so I think part of why they had these undergarments was there was a human aspect of this. Nakedness reminded them of their their humanity and their sinfulness. But notice in verse 10, they were to take these ashes out of the altar I think, I know I'm going to only get through one point here, so I'm going to quit here, but um, uh, I had too much fun in 2 Corinthians 5. But, but there's an obvious reason, right? If you're burning a fire that's 24-7 and you keep putting animals on there and fat on there and all of that, you're going to dis- extinguish the flame there. So they were to bring those ashes out and they were to set them on the side and let them obviously cool down so they could take them outside the city. But there's such a spiritual thought towards that. I think as those ashes came up and they piled them out there, it was evidence that the flames spared no victim. The the victim that was put on there was judged completely. Now, there are those that I think are foolish that teach um, annihilationism. Uh, I don't think that's what this teaches at all. I think it was just saying, this is the end. This is the result of sin, and it's the result of a substitute. He died completely for you. And he wanted him to see that. And so there, when we see God judge, we see that. It made me think of um, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? When Moses looks back at Sodom and Gomorrah, he says something like this. I can't quite quote it, but it looked like the ash of a furnace. I think that's what he says. Genesis 19, 19, somewhere in there. Um, it looks like an ash of furnace. So God often judges, and there's nothing less but a smoldering heap right? Peter, when he reviews Sodom and Gomorrah in his last epistle, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6 through 9, he says, and if he, God, condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction, listen to this phrase, and reduced them to ashes, what do you think he's going to do with the rest of the world, right? He goes on to say that. Then the, then, but then he says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the, the godly. 
But, but, I, but what I believe is happening here in this passage is it's a reminder. One, keep the fire going, get the ashes out of here. But it also says, look, this person died. The, the, I mean, this substitute died completely. They took the full judgment. Sin, sin was judged, and all we have left is ashes. Verse 11, the priest left the courtyard wearing a different garment. They were to take off these garments of sacrifice that represented righteousness of God, and they were to put on these polluted um, garments. They were probably dirty with ashes. If you've ever worked with ashes, you get dirty very easy. Because sin cleans to old garment, right? That's why we, want to, we don't want to put on the old man. Sin cleaves to the old man. Paul says over and over, take off that old garment, take off that old, old person off you and cleave cling to the new one. So they would take these out. And what's interesting is they would take them outside the camp. And there, when that ashes were taken outside the camp, they're cooled and, and now just ash, and they will soon just disintegrate into the ground. It just cried, it's done. Judgment's over. And Jesus Christ one day was taken outside the camp, crucified, completely died. Not his soul. His soul was alive, the Bible's clear, but he died physically. In our place. And I often wonder, maybe, and, and who knows if the Lord did this or not, but was that at one point an ash heap of the Old Testament sacrifices where Christ was crucified? Certainly could have been, right? Look at verse 12. Again, here we see the, the divine justice of God and the substitute of the sacrifice bearing our sin under relentless heat of the Father's um, judgment. Verse 12 says, the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. He keeps going back to this. It shall not go out, but the priest shall burn wood on it every morning. And it shall lay out on the burnt offering on it and offer up smoke, the fat portion. And, and so when we t- talk about fat portion on there, first of all, you've all had a nice juicy steak that has a nice marbling around it. You know, cattle guys like this. You put that on a heart fire, man. What happens to that fat? It goes down and lights your whole barbecue on board, and pretty soon you've got a well-done steak if you're not careful. Or you buy hamburger that's like 80-20 or something like that. You start out with this big hamburger and it ends up like that. Well, what's happened? That fat's burning and it it, it ignites stuff. And that was part of what, just from a practical way, it kept that fire going. But the fat was an offering to God and it made the fire blaze, right? Um, And and then notice, as you read on here, it's tied to a peace offering. And so God took the, he wanted to take the fat, the most precious part of that animal that was around the kidneys and, and so forth, and pull that and offer it to God. And he took that and, he, and he, the flames rose up. He, it's almost an appreciation of, of give me your best. He wants that. And he made that fire blaze and the worshiper understood that God was a consuming fire and his justice was going to be satisfied and satisfied with the best part. And that was a substitute for them. And they were to watch that and see that. And then lastly, I'll quit with this, and we'll come back to this next week. Now, verse 13, God's instructions were so clear here that the fire was to have no end. Look what he says here. Then one of them shall lift up from it a handful of fine flour. So now he's gone to the grain offering here, and they're, they're to give this grain offering, throw it on the fire in verse 14. And the grain offering would, would have um, oil in it. It had frankincense in it, and it was probably ground grain, so it was like flour in there to throw a handful on it, and that would ignite that up. And then they would take some of that grain in there to keep it for themselves and, and make their own cakes out of it. But it was supposed to be a smooth aroma to God, a soothing aroma to God. And as I thought about this, and I'll close with this, um, is that this eternal flame that was seemed to be going here, night and day, morning and night, 
was the teaching that God's wrath um, still abides on the sacrifice. And I thought, I thought about Christ's instruction as John brings it out in the verse that I just want to end with here, two verses I want to end with. John chapter 3, verse 36, as I thought about this grain offering and this fat offering and, and the flames that kept burning on there, is that those who do fall under judgment stay under judgment. And they don't, they don't get out from the wrath of God. And this is why the teaching on purgatory is such a false teaching. John chapter 3, verse 36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Praise the Lord. Isn't that great news? It's the gospel. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. We receive salvation. We have eternal life. But then he goes back and he says, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. Opposite is they're going to see death, eternal death here. And so there's an act of obedience that comes with faith. The first act of obedience that comes with faith is repentance. Too many people say, I don't know if I've ever repented. If God gave you faith, you repent. That's the mark of obedience. That's what God does. How you know you're saved. I'm a sinner. Yes, God, I'm a sinner. I need your son's salvation. That's what faith does. And it changes our position by the grace of God. But he doesn't obey him, doesn't do that. The Bible says he won't see, li- he won't see life. And then it says this phrase, but the wrath of God abides on him. It's the Greek word ameno. It means remains forever. People who go to hell, and you and I know people, you doubtlessly have people in your life who passed away who rejected Jesus Christ or there was just at least no evidence and there's maybe possibly they're not believers and you know that, that the wrath of God is going to remain on them forever. That's the wages of sin. And, and so this is a reminder as they saw this happening that they needed a substitute. Mark chapter 9 verse 45, excuse me, 44, when Jesus was talking about the the wages of temptation of sin. He talks about if your hand offends, you cut it off, and so forth. He goes through that. But then he goes right to hell. It's better for you not to go to hell where the worm does not die. And listen to this. The fire is not quenched. And so this, this flame burning on, on this fire, I don't think was a teaching particularly about the love of God or the Holy Spirit or something like that that sometimes that gets twisted in. It's teaching about sin and righteousness. That's what God was doing. And just listen to this last time. I promise I'll quit with this. I, this was fun to think through. The eternal justice of God will never lack fuel in hell. The eternal justice of God will never lack fuel in hell. Down from the beginning, people will be judged eternally And that sin, because remember, the animal represents sin. That's what's being consumed. That's what's being judged instead of of the person. And so that animal represents sin, the meat, the body, the blood. Everything resembles sin, and they're supposed to deal with that. And so hell will always have plenty of fuel in it to burn forever. But let me tell you just the opposite, and there's the good news. This is why we need everlasting righteousness an eternal redemption that can overcome eternal judgment. And see, the Catholic Church doesn't teach that. They'll teach, well, you do some of this, hopefully that'll lighten your load when you get somewhere, and then maybe you'll get out in time by the prayers of the saints or something else. It's just a life from the pit of hell. Look, there's an eternal judgment that Scott needs, so he needs an eternal redemption to beat that eternal judgment. That's Jesus Christ. 
Man, praise the Lord. And that's what he says. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews 9, 12. Listen to this. And not through the blood of goats and calves. That was only there to point to Christ, to bring us to Christ, to hold off the damnation of God upon his people. So it's not going to come through the blood of goats and calves any longer. But through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all. Now listen to this phrase. Having obtained an eternal redemption. He's now beating my eternal judgment with any trumps it with eternal redemption. And I walk away free of my sin. Isn't that amazing? And you go, Scott, you got all of that out of what, eight verses? I only got through three pages. The more you think about this stuff and the more you connect it to Jesus Christ, the more you write and pray and confess and walk with God. This is the beauty of the scriptures. Every page of your Bible is God-breathed. It's inspired by God. Don't neglect your Old Testament. Think about Christ. You're all going to read, I hope, this week. You're going to open your Bibles, and I don't care if you're on Instagram or you're reading through. Um, right here is my Bible reading. I, I, I print this one off. It's a five-day reading. I read through it every year. I have stacks of these in a file. And right now I'm in Isaiah, end of Isaiah, and I'm in 1 Corinthians of all places, and I'm reading in Psalms. Now, next week I'm going to take you to the Psalms a little bit. I'm going to share some of what it's saying, then I'm going to show you how godly people in the Old Testament looked at it. When you start, when you start understanding these, these, these sacrifices, you're going to read Psalms different, because there's all kinds of Psalms you go, well, I don't, that's a good one. You're talking about sacrifice and smoke and stuff. I don't know what that means. Now you're going to know when David says, Oh, the smoke of my sacrifice goes up to the heavens. See, now you're going I know what he's talking about. He saw his forgiveness. He knew God was, his heart was right with God. He went to temple and he offered a lamb on his behalf and he knew God had forgiven him. So you're going to leave those psalms different. Oh, see, lots happening here, right? All right, Father, thank you for this time together. We get excited about this stuff, Lord. We just love to know you more. It takes all our fear away from all the crud the world's dealing with. We have a great God who had a plan from the foundations of the world to bring us into an eternal redemption. He wants us to value his son's death, though. He doesn't want us to see it cheap. He doesn't want aisles walked and prayers said just to escape something. He wants worshipers. Worshipers who owe their life to him. And gratefully, not in duty, but in delight, serve him. We want our marriages to reflect him. We want our homes to reflect him. We want our ministries and our businesses and our relationships to reflect him. Because we have been reconciled. Lord, we thank you for Leviticus. God, please grow us in the grace and knowledge of your son day after day. And come get us, Lord. We study this. We want to come see you. But while we wait, we may be ambassadors, may we at work for your kingdom and not our own here, Lord. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.